that in 12 minutes, we can get a significant reduction in levels of stress and pain because it's so intense and focused. In hypnosis, you're intensely absorbed. You have to put outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in conscious. We call that dissociation, cognitive flexibility. It's the capacity to change your perspective, devote a little effort to kind of programming your brain for the next steps. The biggest myth is... I'm your host, Sarah Ann Macklin, and I'm on a mission to uncover the maze of health myths around nutrition and well-being, and guide you through my seven pillars of health. Join me on a journey of discovery and connection, and put up a pew for a front row seat to the most exclusive health conversations of our time. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Hypnosis. What does that word bring to mind for you? entertainers tricking people on stage, a swinging pendulum, or even a zen-like state of focus. Whatever it is for you, this conversation is going to open your eyes to the scientific conversation and the true meaning behind hypnosis. It's just a state of highly focused attention, like, like getting so caught up in a movie. So it's like looking through the telephoto lens of a camera. What you see, you see with great detail, you're less aware of the context. Dr. David Spiegel is an author, psychiatrist, and professor at Stanford University. And he has published 425 scientific journals on this topic. I want to start by, before we even understand what it is, what are some of the biggest myths that you hear surrounding this that we can just get out of the way before we begin? Good. Thank you, uh, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here. And the biggest myth is that you lose control with hypnosis, that somebody takes control over your mind and um, that you act, you do you things that are silly or inappropriate and you don't have any control over what you're doing. And actually the opposite is the case, that you hypnosis is a way that you can gain control over your mind and body. You can help yourself feel different. You can try out being different. You can control sensations like pain, control anxiety. So it is not a loss of control, it's a, a gain of control. All hypnosis is really self-hypnosis. I love that because that is something actually that I would have thought about. And I think there's a lot of people that might be scared about trying hypnosis because of this losing control. So can you talk to me a little bit about how is it that we actually gain control? So what you said is really interesting, but can you help explain that a bit more? Hypnosis has sort of three components. The first is absorption, getting intensely involved. Have you ever gotten so caught up in a good movie that you forget you're watching a movie and you enter the imagined world? And, and later on, you may think about it and say, well, you know, come to think of it, the premise didn't make sense and the actress wasn't that great and all that. But at the time, you're in it. So in hypnosis, you're intensely absorbed. And people who do that tend, in fact, to be more hypnotizable, who lose themselves in movies and, and reading novels and things like that. So to do that, to focus so intently, you have to put outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in consciousness. We call that dissociation. Right now, Sarah, you're sitting on a chair, I presume, and there are parts of your body touching the chair that send you sensory input. But hopefully, until I mentioned that, you weren't even aware of those sensations. If, if you were, we can just stop the interview now. You know, um, what, what it means is all the time, our brain is filtering out a whole lot of information that could distract us from what we want to focus on. The more you do that, uh, the more focused your attention is, the more hypnotic-like your experience is. And the third component is what used to be called suggestibility, but what we're calling now cognitive flexibility. It's the capacity to change your perspective, try something new. 
to do something you might have thought you couldn't or shouldn't do, to in- immerse yourself in being different and seeing what it feels like, which is a wonderful framework for making change, for saying, I always thought I couldn't do this, but if I approach it the right way, maybe I can. So those three points, the first one you said, is you said, do you get lost in a film? And I'm thinking that's something that definitely happens to me. I can get quite absorbed when watching something. And that might mean that I'm more hypnotizable. How can someone know if they're more hypnotizable than others? Because my dad got hypnotized. Well, it didn't work on him. He tried to do it to stop smoking, but he is very black and white. And he has a very like rigid mindset. Whereas I've been hypnotized once and it worked on me. So we've had two very different experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm just thinking anyone who's listened to the skepticism before we start, I really kind of want to encourage more awareness around this, Great. is how do we know if more hypnotizable? How can one know that? There is a test and we have it on our digital interactive hypnosis app for every, um, and it takes about five minutes and you're given a structured hypnotic uh, induction to quickly enter a hypnotic state. And you're given instructions about your hand feeling light and buoyant that'll float up in the air like a balloon. If you pull it down, it'll float right back up. You'll find something pleasant and amusing about it. And then there's a cutoff signal to end that change in the way your body feels. And we, can, we score it in, into three categories. The most hypnotizable people are what you'll, you'll be told you're the poet. You know, you just, you, you lead with your heart, experience Trump's reason, and you just try things and see what they feel like. The, the people in the middle, which is the majority of people, are diplomats, we call them, because they engage in an experience and then they step back and think about it and wonder and negotiate. The low-end people who are probably like your father are we call the researchers. They don't believe anything they can't read and, and they, they want to rationalize everything rather than let themselves drift into an experience. And the, it turns out that hypnotizability is as stable a trait in adult life as IQ. It's very stable. Wow. And is there a percentage of people? Is there kind of, if you look at this in percentages of how many people are, are you know, are people more hypnotizable than others? The, is there more poets than researchers? Or is there more diplomats? How does it split? The biggest group is the diplomats. That's, that's about half the population. Somewhat, but they step back and wonder about it. The extreme upper end is about 15 to 20%. Those are the poets. They just lose themselves. You know, they get immersed in whatever they do. Uh, they lead with their heart. They're very sensitive to other people and how people feel. Um, and they can take great advantage of their hypnotic ability to control pain, uh, you know, natural childbirth. Oh. Uh, it, it has many advantages. And then there's about 15 to 20% on the low end we call the researchers. They just, they read about it, but they don't feel it. They don't understand what you're talking about when you say, can you get lost in a sunset? Can you work for three hours and realize you've missed dinner? That kind of intense absorption, they just don't do. So I'm just thinking about this, where for me now starting to you know, have this conversation today and have more awareness around hypnosis, and I'm sure many people listening to this may have tried it, but it's not as spoken about as something like mindfulness. And now as you're talking about not losing control, but more gaining control. The first that came to my mind is there seems to be kind of a real presence, even though you're not, you know, fully aware of what's going on during hypnosis. That real state of like, if I'm watching a film, I'm so hyper-focused in that moment. It reminds me a little bit around how mindfulness is approached. 
What's your view on that? How is it different to mindfulness and how would you describe it? Hypnosis is the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. It's been around for 250 years. The first time a talking interaction between a doctor and a patient was thought to have therapeutic potential. And yet, it's still a sideshow. Um, we don't get no respect. You know, it's, and I think there is un, unreasonable fear of losing control. People think of stage show hypnotists that make the football coach dance like a ballerina and all that. And, and that doesn't do us any good. But that's sort of like judging medications by the performance of snake oil salesmen. You know, there, there, are, there are bad uses of anything, and, and that can be one. I also have been impressed by the speed with which mindfulness has taken off and as an Eastern tradition has become very popular in the West. It doesn't have the particular baggage we have, um, but we have some advantages uh, for helping with certain kinds of problems over mindfulness. Mindfulness is not meant to, to solve problems. It's meant to be different, to get over yourself, to be, have open presence, just let whatever it is flow through you, um, to develop compassion for others, which is a good thing, and to scan your body and just be sensitive to it. But it's Eastern. It's not to solve a problem. It's just to be different. Whereas with hypnosis, you go into the state for a purpose, to control pain, to manage stress, uh, to stop smoking, uh, to get to sleep, to get back to sleep. And so it's meant to be quick and efficient, Western style. And it's a kind of focused attention rather than just this general idea of whatever it is, just let it flow through you. To give you an example, I had a woman who came to me to Reverie who had been a meditator for 10 years, twice a day for 10 years. She developed migraine headaches. And the meditation did nothing for the migraine, you know, and she was more and more frustrated. So she was quite hypnotizable. I had her imagine an ice pack. People with migraines often feel heat, temperature, their heads feel hot. And I said, imagine an ice pack like a helmet on your head, cool, tingling numbness, filter the hurt out of the pain. And she, she said, the migraines are gone. They're gone. I can't believe it. And I thank you for allowing me to use my intentionality. Because the, the idea in, in meditation, by and large, is you, you're not, you want to get over intentionality. Don't try and make or do anything, just be. And with hypnosis, you're doing something. You're focusing on how to better handle the problem. Sarah, I'm so sorry to cut in, but since Live Well, Be Well is all about health and well-being, I need to tell you what great mental shape I'm in today. Since we started producing this podcast, it seems that you've been on quite a health journey. And seeing you blossom honestly fills me with joy. My sleep cycle's on point. My gut microbiome is in better shape than ever. I'm even doing HIIT workouts. Can you believe it? But the reason I rudely interrupted this interview is to tell you about the adaptogenic coffee that you've suggested to me earlier this week, which contains lion's mane mushroom and rhodiola. Two things I personally don't know much about. Perhaps you can enlighten me. Science shows that lion's mane mushroom is known to improve memory, mental clarity, concentration, and overall, just your brain health. And rhodiola is a powerful adaptogen known for its effects on stress levels and brain functioning. Okay, that's all sounding very exciting indeed. And I can confirm these shroomy coffees are absolutely delicious. And they come in these single sachets, which is incredibly convenient. But I don't really understand what makes them so special. So what exactly is adaptogenic coffee? The medicinal mushrooms and coffee are probably one of the most perfect pairings. You get all the benefits of regular coffee, which we do love, 
whilst minimising any side effects. So why does this happen? I know you're going to ask. Caffeine is a nootropic. It increases our alertness and our attention. But many of us will have experienced the increased levels of the stress hormone cortisol, which results in, sadly, the jitters and anxiety. This has 100% worked wonders for me this week. So where can people get them? Okay, so if you want to try these at home, we have a special discount code from the amazing brand London Nootropics, and they have three different blends to choose from. So listen up, Sam. Here is your mix. You can have Zen. It's probably the most balancing. It's great if you're caffeine sensitive. Then you've got Mojo. This is perfect for that natural boost. If you're feeling a bit fatigued, it makes a really good pre-workout because of the cordyceps and also, get this, the Siberian ginseng. And my favourite, to experience the effects of lion's mane and rhodiola, get yourself some of the Flow Blend. We've got a bit of a treat for the listeners, right? A discount code? Yes, we do, Sam. And I know that you love it because you love a discount. So all you need to do is use the code LIVEWELLBEWELL to get 20% off at londonutropics.com. A box of each blend is only £15, so you're kind of getting a very good deal here. And subscriptions start at £12 a month, delivered straight to your door. It is fascinating just as you're saying that, it just makes me realise how powerful our brains are. The power behind hypnosis of our brains is, is completely fascinating. And I guess that's what I'm hearing a lot about, the things that actually solves a lot of problems. So we started off by saying what hypnosis isn't. So how would you describe hypnosis as apart from gaining control? It's just a state of highly focused attention, like, like getting so caught up in a movie. So it's like looking through the telephoto lens of a camera. What you see, you see with great detail, you're less aware of the context. So it's absorption, dissociation, putting things outside of conscious awareness that could be conscious, and cognitive flexibility. It's that, why don't I try it? What would it be like? Can I suspend my usual self-evaluation? Can I suspend my usual worry about what other people would think? And just see what it would feel like. I know that I hurt my back. Is it possible that I can just stop piling my anxiety onto the pain and making it worse, that I can learn to filter the hurt out of the pain, to imagine that I'm in that nice warm bath that gives me relief? And, and actually make the pain different. Uh, I had a young woman came to see me, seven months pregnant, had very bad lower back disease. They couldn't give her medication because she was pregnant, but the more the baby grew, the more back pain she had. They tried implanting a nerve stimulator. It didn't work. And I got her hypnotized, and I had her imagine she was moderate to high hypnotizable. I got her to imagine she was in her bath at home with the bubbles there and, and she felt the warmth and the lightness and the floating. And the pain went from 7 out of 10 to 3 out of 10. But she looked angry. And I said, what are you angry about? She said, why in the hell are you the last doctor I got sent to instead of the first? So we just don't take advantage of our own mental resources. As you said, the power we've got in our brain to alter sensation, to alter our level of stress, to handle and approach problems differently, to manage urges and, con and control bad habits like smoking and vaping. All of that can be helped with hypnosis. It does frustrate me hearing that in the sense that because you mentioned the word snake oil, and yes, there's that kind of stage hypnosis where people kind of get taken on the stage and hypnotized and people are terrified while there's a huge audience quite an embarrassing, vulnerable moment to be put on stage. And then also you don't really know what you're letting yourself in for. So there's 
that's how I think hypnosis has been basically shown in society for a very long time. The clinical aspect that you're talking about and how you just described it is a very different way of approaching hypnosis. Even as you're talking about it, I'm sure many listeners are saying, well, I've suffered with X, Y, Z, and I've never, ever, ever thought of approaching hypnosis. Now, those two, and please keep sending examples of all these people that, you know, it's really helped because I think the big thing is here, once it happens, how permanent is it? Does it kind of come back? Do you need to have more sessions or does that back pain just dissipate or the migraines just completely dissipate? What's the kind of permeability when you've had a session of hypnosis and there seems to be this like amazing result? The, the same question comes up when a medication works. Do I have to keep taking it? Sometimes you do, but sometimes not. We had a guy, Adam, um, who told us a story about how he, um, he was at a party and somebody took a picture of him and uh, he was looking at it with his son the next day and he said, uh, there were a bunch of people in the room there and he said, gee, who's that guy who's wearing the same shirt I wore? And his son said, Dad, that's you and that's your belly behind the shirt. And he had never kind of gotten just how much weight he had put on and he, he felt terrible and he came to reverie and he learned to focus on eating with respect for his body he'd go into self-hypnosis and and think would i ever overstuff a baby or a dog or a cat no why am i doing this to my own body i'm my body's keeper for my body too much food is the poison and so he started doing daily self-hypnosis um he lost 33 pounds he kept it off he started walking from his home in palo alto to his job in mountain view uh, every day instead of driving his car. Um, and he is now very thin, very slender, very happy with how he is. He does the self-hypnosis when he needs it, but he doesn't if he doesn't need it. So the thing about hypnosis is there are a couple things going on. You're, you're not only noticing that you're changing uh, a perception or a habit, um, but you're, you're observing uh, how you may have contributed to the problem to begin with, and by taking a new point of view, the problem isn't as big as you thought it was. And so it's something that is, in fact, manageable. And just giving up and giving in is contributing to it. Or with pain, sometimes we compound pain with anxiety. So you think, oh my God, there's something really bad going on. And it feels worse. People find that anxiety and pain, for example, compound one another. And if you learn to manage the anxiety, the pain will literally be less. Hypnosis can be a way of um, teaching yourself how to be different and staying different. So the nice thing also is it's a tool. Once you learn it, you've got with you anytime you need it. So some people at the beginning will do self-hypnosis three, four, five times a day. After a while, they may do a daily refresher. It's available if you need it, anytime you need it, anywhere you need it. We've discovered, for example, uh, Sarah, that, that there's a part of the brain where activity goes down in hypnosis. It's called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. It's part of the salience network. It's part of the brain system that tells you if there's a loud noise, <laughs> you better pay attention to it. It derails you from whatever else you're thinking. And in hypnosis, activity in that part of the brain goes down. And part of how it does is that hypnotizable people have more of an inhibitory neurotransmitter called GABA that helps serotonin bind to its receptors. Uh, so we have our own little natural hypnopharmacy in our brain 
and we can actually make more of the anti-anxiety uh, neurotransmitters work to reduce our anxiety and stress. So uh, it's a system that once you get it up and running, and you know, we know that neurons that fire together wire together, we call it neuroplasticity, that the more you do that, the better you get at it. So you can really change your brain by changing the way you deal with a problem like pain or stress or habits uh, and that kind of thing. So David, what you just said about anxiety was really fascinating. So can you tell me a bit more, actually, so our listeners more about this? You can think of anxiety as the fear of fear, that there is this feedback between your worry, your body's reaction to the worry, your reaction to your body. And so I teach people how to better manage their anxieties. I don't say don't be afraid. There are, there's plenty of reasons for us to be fearful. But I had a man recently who said, my career is being totally ruined because I get anxious in an airplane. And I used to be able to fly. I just can't fly now. And that's ter terribly damaging to my career. So I said, okay, I want you to do three things when you get on the airplane and practice this before, go into a state of self-hypnosis, and instead of fighting the plane, float with the plane. Think of it, buckle yourself in and think of the movement the way you used to enjoy riding on a roller coaster when you were a kid. Just enjoy it. Float with the plane. Second, think of the plane as an extension of your body. So you're reconceptualizing what's going on. You're not trapped in a tin can thrown into the air. You're using a mode of transportation like a bicycle. If you want to get from one place to another, you can walk or you can take a bicycle and get there faster. And the pilot is an extension of your brain. You've chosen a good airline that has well-trained pilots, and they're controlling it. So you're not out of control. You're in control. And third, think about the difference between a possibility and a probability. It's always possible that the plane will crash, but it isn't probable. And so if you focus on the fact that you can visualize it, not meaning it's likely to happen. And he got back to me uh, a few months later and said, I'm flying again. Thank you. You know, I've got my life back. So people can just learn to control their physical reaction and reconceptualize what's happening in a way that allows them to feel in control and to be in control. That's amazing. I mean, there's a fear of flying is a huge one for so many people. Yes. It's about 10% of people w who would fly can't because they're too frightened of it. And that's where anxiety becomes actually a completely debilitating life that's situation, right. that's, actually. That's right. It does, yeah. I think that's one of the biggest things, right? That when I think about mindfulness or even therapy on talking to somebody about and communication around how they're dealing with maybe it's grief or pain and how hypnosis must be, must be working on a completely different area of the brain or something is happening that seems to be entirely different in the approach. How would you, how would you describe to somebody like me? What we found is going on in the brain, that's one of the things. I'd say you're in a particularly receptive state when you're in a state of hypnosis. So I do psychotherapy too. Um, it can be very helpful to people. But in a state of hypnosis, you're more open and receptive to approaching things from a new point of view. So it, it's more intense. Um, we are changing things in our brain when we do psychotherapy too. We, you know, we, we learn to be different and the brain can begin to rewire itself a bit differently. But in hypnosis, you're, you're not arguing, you're absorbing, you're listening, you're seeing what would this feel like if I did this? How do I feel right now when I do it? Um, and we find that in 12 minutes, we can get a significant reduction in levels of stress and pain 
during these hypnosis exercises. So it's rare that you can just feel different, feel better in a hurry with any kind of psychotherapeutic technique. And you can with hypnosis because it's so intense and focused. Wow. 12 minutes. That is quick. I mean, I was complete. I kind of thought, you know, it would be at least an hour before you start seeing these effects. But 12 minutes is is incredibly quick. I mean, that, I guess that's something as well. If you're hypnotizable, you'll go straight in. You go straight in. It, you, the hypnotic inductions in Reverie are less than a minute. Um, you can just shift gears. You don't. Have, it's not like going to sleep at all. Hypnosis is not sleep. It's a, it's a, a, a wakeful attention. We find you know an average reduction of a point and a half out of ten within twelve minutes. So people can feel different immediately. That's one of the nice things about it. You know whether it's going to help you or not right away, and so it is possible to make yourself feel different in a hurry with hypnosis. Now, David, explain this one to me. So I've only had it done once, okay? Now, I had it quite a few years ago when I went through quite a traumatic breakup. Mm, and sorry. I went to a retreat and there was a hypnosis person there. Anyway, so a hypnotist said, like, come, let's see if this works on you. Mm-hmm. Now, I just don't remember what happened. I don't I don't remember the experience. Like, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't tell you what happened. You know, I mean, she just said you went straight away. But there's that moment of, obviously, I just felt like I went completely unconscious. I obviously wasn't unconscious. I was obviously very conscious and breathing and going through the experience. Is that quite a normal thing? Can people not remember what happens in the experience? Or are you aware the whole way through when you're being hypnotized of what's going on? And can you come back and be able to explain it clearly? Well, Because I think yeah. there's like a real misconception around this. There is. Um, I, I, I would be pretty certain that you were aware while it was happening, but... Uh, your access easily to memories of what happened then uh, seems to be less available to you. And in part, it's because there was a shift in context and we need contextual cues to remember things. You know, if if you go back to the school you went to when you were seven or eight years old and you look around, the size of the hall looks different because you're a bigger person now, you start remembering things you know, you you open a locker and you remember the stuff you had in your locker or you see these little kids go by and you start, it triggers a whole bunch of recollections that were there, but you just didn't access because of the associated uh, search network that you'd have to use to get to it. And so with hypnosis, sometimes the shift in your mental state and, and the context is acute enough that if you're not thinking along those lines later, you may not remember it. I would guess that you could recall that under certain circumstances, including going into another state of hypnosis and reliving some of what happened at that time. And, you know, I doubt that the memories are gone. I just think they're a little harder to access, Uh, but you could do it. What was the, was it helpful to you? Did the uh, hypnosis session help? I feel like it was. I think that I went in a very early stage of where I was with coping with everything, as opposed to a stage where maybe I was a little bit more, I don't want to say I was unstable, I wasn't, but I think my body was probably in a state of fight or flight at that stage when I was seeing somebody. But that makes me think like, what is hypnosis kind of useful mostly if someone's listening to this? And you've mentioned back pain and, and migraines, but 
What I love about what you mentioned is it feels like a real preventative treatment to actually solving problems. Yes. And that feels very hopeful to hear. I think that feels very hopeful because I think we are very much in the Western society towards once we're ill, we then sought treatment. And this feels like a very pre preventable, actionable, problem-solving treatment. So what are the kind of problems that we would come to? The most common uses people make of reverie are for stress and stress management. And just what you observed, whatever it was that happened at that time, you went in in fight or flight mode and you came out feeling calm and relaxed. And that's one of the great things you can do as a stress management tool because when we're stressed, there's this kind of snowball effect. You're stressed, your, your body reacts to that, your muscles tense, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, you breathe faster and more shallowly. And then you notice your body's feeling bad and you think, oh my God, this must be really bad. And it's like a snowball rolling downhill. So whatever happened then, you change that so psychosomatic reaction to the stressor of this terrible relationship and we're able to control your body. And that's often how we use it. And one of the most popular uses is for stress management. Because what we say to people is, you can't, maybe you can't figure out what to do about the stressor, but you can figure out what to do about how your body reacts to the stressor. So the first thing I do in hypnosis is I have people imagine they're floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or floating in space. Enjoy that sense and affiliate. Use your memories of good, positive, relaxing, comfortable experiences to help with your body first. And once you get your body floating in calm, you're beginning to break up that automatic association between the stressor and the physical reaction. You're able to think more clearly about it. And now you can think about, well, what could I do about that? You can picture on an imaginary screen what you would say to your boss the next time he says something nasty or unpleasant to you. Or you can figure out uh, how to get a project done by breaking it down into components and doing the first one first and the second one second, it begins to seem more manageable. It can be very useful in just starting with your body and working up as a way of managing stress. It's very useful, as I mentioned, for pain control. People can realize that there's the sensory input and how they react to it, and if they can disentangle their anxiety about what's going on, from the perception itself, they can make it feel better. And in same thing, within, within 12 minutes, people can see whether their pain levels are better and three quarters of them find a reduction in pain in the first 12 minutes. Um, we find it's, it's helpful to get to sleep or to stay asleep. The kind of fight or flight mode you've sometimes been in is the antithesis of being ready to sleep. Uh, your, your body, your brain can't let itself go to sleep when you're so aroused. So if you can get your body into a more relaxed, comfortable state, it's the ground that allows your brain to say, okay, I can shift gears and go into this parasympathetic, tend and befriend, uh, soothing, rest and digest state where you just kind of let things happen and allow sleep to happen. It's very good for controlling habits, uh, for, um, you know, if you smoke, uh, I don't tell people you won't want to smoke. I don't tell people to fight smoking. It's like telling yourself, don't think about purple elephants. You just do more of it. Instead, I say, you're your body's keeper. For my body, smoking is a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. Would you ever put tar and nicotine smoke into your baby's lungs? Hell no. Would you do it to your dog, your cat? No. So your body's as dependent on you as your baby is. So treat it with the respect it deserves and focus on what you're for. And we find that, you know, one out of five people just practicing that 
quit smoking, and that's a high percentage, and, and the majority of others at least cut down on how much they smoke daily. So if you focus on what you're for, you're shifting your perspective on a problem and trying out something new and different and seeing how well it can work. It can help people with grief and loss, um, with ending relationships. We have run support groups uh, for women with advanced breast cancer. And people used to worry that it was bad to put them in groups together because they would see one another die of the same illness as though cancer patients, you know, death is a novel concept to a cancer patient. Um, Half of all women diagnosed with breast cancer will live to die of something else. Um, but everybody understandably fears it. We would have them go into self-hypnosis at the end, learn to control their pain, and grieve losses. Say, I want you to picture now this, this lovely member of the group who died last week, and I want you to allow yourself to feel the sadness and loss. But on the other side of an imaginary screen, I want you to remember one thing that she gave you that stays with you. Uh, that it's it's not everything. She's left you a gift, so enjoy it and appreciate it. And it helps people to process uh, loss and grief while managing their physiological arousal uh, doing it. There are many, uh, many problems like that that we have uh, approaches to on Reverie, and I walk you through it. The nice thing, it's interactive. We We programmed it so that If you get to a certain point, I'll ask, is your hand floating in the air? If you say yes, I go on to something else. If not, I help you with that. So throughout, we're asking you how you react and encouraging you to to carry on. And it's there whenever you need it. I used to worry, uh, Sarah, that, you know, I was trying to make it almost as good as being in the office with me. And I realized that, um, you know, if you wake up at three in the morning and you want help getting back to sleep, you probably would not welcome having me in your bedroom telling you how to do it. But um, you've got the app, and the app is there anytime you want it and need it to help you get back to sleep. You're probably listening to this show because you care about your health, both physical and mental. That's why I created Live Well, Be Well to share new ways to think about your health. I want to talk to you quickly about something that we all experience, and that is stress. Now, we can all get stressed about a host of things, even the minor things. And stress triggers the primal response. So even simply sitting in a meeting or traffic can trigger this. This brings me on to something called the vagus nerve. And it is incredibly important within the stress response and for calming our primal brains. This device I've been using is called Sensei. Now, it's a wearable touch therapy device. Research has proven that the vagus nerve activation calms the brain medulla responsible for stress and anxiety. Sensei is a device which uses infrasound resonance. And when paired with the sessions in the Sensei Companion app, it helps reduce stress and improve overall well-being. In 10 or 30-minute sessions, you can feel an incredible sense of peace, reducing all those small moments of feeling stress or anxiety throughout your day. This device is generally a piece of modern magic and such an exciting step in modern well-being technology. It makes the perfect gift, or even better, a self-care purchase. To experience a sense of calm at home, work, or even commuting with your busy lifestyle, just go to getsensate.com and use the code Sarah Ann to get 10% off your first order. I would definitely love to just click my fingers and you turn up being able to wishfully move back to sleep in my room. I mean, I would, uh, I would definitely say yes to having a 
a psychiatrist come and do that for me and hypnotize me about to sleep that would be great good well i'll be there <laughs> maybe that's the next level it's an on-demand service that <laughs> <laughs> might be that's right that's that's the that higher stage service that's a concierge service i love that the premium service will be unlocked in 2024 after a brainstorming session on live well be well um but you kind of mentioned such an amazing array of different things that people can approach hypnosis with to help them solve their problem. But something that, and I don't know if this is me just making this up on the spot, but because a lot of our, and especially mine, a lot of focus is drawn away now. And I'm constantly moved away because of my device, my phone, my laptop. So I find my focus slipping a lot. And then there's this huge kind of conversation and rise around attention deficit disorder, ADHD. And a lot of people now are speaking about this a lot more. And I think it's really interesting to kind of bring this into the conversation only because you spoke about hypnosis as this highly focused attention state. So I'm thinking, well, people that are struggling with with their focus, whether they've got ADHD or not, I think we all struggle with focus. Is this something that can help with us focusing on maybe our work more or reducing distractions. And I'm just thinking, you know, as the new year of 2024 is on its way, it's something that we all have these like huge outrageous goals. A lot of people now are like working from home. It can be really, really hard to solely focus. And this is just something that kind of comes to mind. And I know that you're speaking about different areas of the brain and I'm wondering because of those areas of the brain that you've mentioned, is that something that could help people? Yes, uh, absolutely right. And we have a program called Find Your Focus. And you're absolutely right that if any technique should help with that, hypnosis should be it because it's about focusing attention. You know what I would think of? If you're, if you're trying to plan your day and get some things done, keep in mind that if, you're, if you want your smartphone to do something, you need to spend an annoying minute or two poking around till you get the thing into the right frame to do what it needs to do and get rid of stuff that's intruding turn off the alarms when you get new text messages and things, you, gotta, you can very effectively do the same thing with your brain. Take, take, do a, devote a little effort to kind of programming your brain for the next steps the way you would have to program your smartphone to do it because it's not that smart. And you can do that. So you go into a state of self-hypnosis. You picture on an imaginary screen, for example, what you want to accomplish, what you're going to pay attention to at that time. And just by inference, you're saying, I'm going to ignore everything else and do it later. I'm not, I, I, here's what I want to accomplish in the next hour or the next morning or the next whatever it is. And just by setting your brain up in self-hypnosis, you, you, you program it to follow that direction and to just put aside distractions, recognize that you've got a goal you really want to fulfill and you can fulfill. It's a realistic goal and think how good you'll feel once you've done it. And then you can go on and program your brain to do something else. But give it the same kind of hypnotic attention that you have to give your smartphone to get it to do whatever it is you think it ought to do. Has there been any studies around this on ADHD and hypnosis? I think there's sort of a dichotomy. I think some people with ADHD, and I have some patients who have it, uh, who are hypnotizable and can use it uh, to help themselves pay attention in a more controlled way manner um, and be less sort of emotionally disrupted if they have difficulty paying attention to what they want. So they're just as self-soothing and again, calming the body first and then the mind 
can be very helpful for them. I think there is some at the extreme end of the spectrum who probably are not that hypnotizable and for whom other approaches might work better, stimulants and other things that seem to help. But particularly at the middle and low end, I think people with ADHD can get benefit from this as well. I absolutely love interviews like this one, which give you so much useful advice for your own life. And if it's helped you, this is an invitation to join my inner circle. It will give you exclusive access to a host of things, expert written articles, nutritious, delicious recipes, your own members hub newsletter, podcast plus, and also products and discounts decided by me for you. For one very small investment, it will help guide and support your health. If you use the code SAMCOMMUNITY, you can get 20% off your Inner Circle membership. Just head to www.sarahannmacklin.com. I think it's a really interesting conversation to have because the first thing we think about with ADHD is, is medication on a treatment program and actually thinking of other ways that we can have these discussions that could work, could not work, but everything I think should be, you know, available and open to try before we simply give give medications the first option. And so it could be a really interesting solution for somebody. And it's one of those things that I'm pleased you said it, it might not work for everybody because there can be a frustration when somebody tries something and then they feel like more of a shame and more of a stigma that it hasn't worked for them. So I think that's something that's really key to point out. But you mentioned something there, and I haven't, I haven't not touched upon this yet, but you mentioned about the mind-body connection. Now, this is something that I am completely fascinated by and I know that you've done a lot of research in this area around the hypnosis of the mind-body connection. Can you explain to our listeners a bit more about this? Well one of the things we've learned Sarah with uh, functional neuroimaging with MRI uh, imaging is that in hypnosis there's a very strong active connection between the prefrontal cortex um, particularly on the left side and a little thing called the insula in the middle of the front of the brain. It's a mind-body pathway. Uh, It helps us to perceive what's going on in our body and also to control what goes on in our body. And those two regions, the executive control region and the insula, are more intensely connected in hypnosis. So it's a state where you have a greater than usual ability to control how your body feels and how it functions. We did an experiment once Um, in which uh, we had people come in first thing in the morning, uh, and I hypnotized them and had them eat imaginary meals. And uh, I got hungry just listening to them. You know, they would travel in their imagination to their favorite restaurants. And uh, uh, one woman, after about half an hour of doing it, said, let's stop, I'm full, Uh, just eating imaginary food. And um, we found, we, we put down a tube into their stomach and found that they had an 89% increase in gastric acid secretion, just um, ima- eating imaginary food. So their brain was telling their stomach, get ready, there's food coming, only there wasn't. So then um, we had them relaxed and think of anything that didn't involve eating or drinking. And there was a 39% decrease in their gastric acid secretion. So their brain was telling their stomach, no, no food coming, do something else. And then we injected them with a drug called penogastrin that makes the the cells in the stomach that secrete acid active. And there was still a 19% decrease in that function um, uh, after pentagastrin in the hypnosis condition. So either direction, the brain could increase or decrease gastric acid secretion. We have much more control over what's going on in our body than we think. And our brain is connected to every organ in the body all the time. You know, if you think of it this way, uh, Sarah, that 
you know, the brain uh, is our major evolutionary advantage. You know, it's a three-pound organ, sits on our shoulders, um, controls everything that's going on in the body, perceives everything that's going on in the body, but it doesn't come with a user's manual. You know, we don't always know how to make take the full advantage of what our brains can do. The thing that makes me particularly sad, for example, is where we over-rely on certain interventions. You know, in medicine, the only real interventions are injection, ingestion, or incision. You know, it's uh, treat the body like it's a broken car and replace parts and fix it. And sometimes you have to do that. I'm a doctor. I use meds. I, I get that. But sometimes um, just using the brain better is better than what we have to offer. And the worst example is opioids for chronic pain. You know, opioids are, are pretty useful for acute pain. They will give you pain relief, but they're terrible for chronic pain. They get people addicted. Um, and uh, last year in the U.S., 88,000 Americans died of opioid overdoses last year. And the CDC is expecting it'll be 111 million this year. It, it's horrifying. And yet we don't use techniques that are real and effective. We've shown in randomized trials that hypnosis significantly reduces pain and anxiety during medical procedures for which people are not in general anesthesia. It reduces the pain by 80%. Uh, it shortens the procedure time. It reduces the medication they need to use. We published that in the Lancet, a leading British medical journal. And yet, if, if it were a drug that did that, every hospital in the country would be using it. Uh, and it was just using hypnosis, teaching people hypnosis. So it's an underutilized resource. And it's a real shame because hypnosis has never killed anybody. Um, and you have hundreds of thousands of people dying of opioid overdoses, uh, not just from street drugs, which are dangerous, but from prescription drugs, which are also dangerous. I watched a, a show around that, actually, around realizing how bad the opioid crisis was in, um, in America. And I think... Pa Painkiller, yeah. It's, um, it's terrifying. And I think, you know, with the new weight loss drug that's come out as well, again, there's another treatment... And I say that anyone who's listening in audio in um, in colons, because again, we know that the longer term effects are actually, they're not great and they make you feel very nauseous and you put all the weight back on. So again, it's not getting to the solution of the problem. And as you were talking about, I mean, I know you spoke about cognitive flexibility, a word I love, making these new neural pathways, connections. It makes me think about two things because that's when I thought about the weight loss drug. One, eating disorders, something again, which I feel, is there any research and studies here? Because that sounds like it could be something really fascinating around this. And again, and this does stratify eating disorders is, is overnourishment and obesity um, because obviously we are sadly really stretching towards an obesity epidemic. And I don't say that lightly, but a lot of things that we're dying from now is, is in relation to poor metabolic health. And again, a lot of it is because we have these obesogenic environments around us and you know the clear marketing messagings aren't clear at all and we don't really know what we're meant to be doing and how we're meant to be eating. And it can be very kind of mixed managed and, and really overwhelming for the average person. And I'm just kind of thinking as you're talking about this, these are the two things that came to my mind around hypnosis. Whereas obviously one of the things that we're doing is around giving a weight loss drug that hasn't been heavily tested and actually has severe side effects. And in the long run looks to be putting on more weight once you come off it. And it's such a high financial it's 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 so expensive every month that to have that again it's a huge financial pressure to know that you've got to be able to pay that every month as well so that's just something that came to mind and i wonder if there's any evidence around around these two things that i just spoke about around eating 
you're absolutely right. And, the, you know, there's big industry like big pharma with, with uh, anti-anxiety and pain drugs. And not only are there, you've very well articulated the problems with these new drugs, but you don't just lose fat when you take them, you lose muscle. And it is very hard to regrow your muscle. You can do it, but the older you get, the harder it is to do it. So you wind up weaker, and, and um, it's, it's another complication of these drugs that they're not talking about that much, but is a real problem. Hypnosis can be very helpful for that. Uh, you focus people on eating with respect for your body. Uh, you would never force more food than it wanted into a, a, into a baby or a dog or a cat. Um, uh, don't do it to your own body. Eat with respect. Eat like a gourmet. You teach people to savor the texture, the flavor, the aroma, the temperature of the food. And you can find that you can enjoy eating more while you eat less. And one of the reasons that there's such a huge obesity epidemic, I mean, it's uh, you know over 30% of the American population, is that we have overprocessed food uh, that has a lot of calories and just enough taste to keep you wanting more, but not enough to satisfy you. So the food is built to get you to eat more than you need or want. You know, I've always found when I, when I go to France, I enjoy eating, um, but I find myself, you know, recognizing when I'm full because the flavor experience is so uh, attractive and intensive that I've had a wonderful experience, I stop. Whereas uh, a lot of food that we serve in America and elsewhere is mostly fat and sugar and salt, and, and you barely taste anything. And so your brain doesn't quite know when you've had enough, and you tend to keep eating to finally get some kind of satisfaction. So we focus on eating with respect for your body. Enjoy eating more, but eat in a way that's respectful. Eat when you're hungry. Stop eating when you're full. We did one randomized trial comparing that with other forms of support for eating, and we found a significant 22-pound weight loss in three months, and people kept it off. Do you think that that's a lot because they're cultivating more self-compassion for themselves? There's more of a an understanding with oneself or not? Well, I, I think that's a very astute question. And um, it's, it's, I think, compassion for themselves, but really, in an odd way, compassion for their body. And that's one of the things that happens that you just think about, you know, if you think about it, you and your body are closely related, I hope, but they're not the same thing. And your body depends on you. Uh, people, for example, with, with eating with, and with, with pain get angry at their body. They get frustrated. And one of the exercises on reverie for pain control is to say, have compassion for your body. It's doing the best it can. But if you get angry with it, um, you're paying more attention to it. The pain gets worse. Instead, you just say, it's struggling with it. Let me see how I can help my body. Help your body as if it were a little child that were hurt. You know, would you get angry with a child? Hell no. You'd give them a hug and soothe them. And that's what you can do with your own body. And the same with eating, that you say, yeah, I, you're hungry, okay, I'll feed you, uh, but I don't want to put too much food into you because you won't do well with it. So if you just take a different point of view, you're right, it's compassion. Indirectly, it's for yourself because it'll make your life better too. But the immediate step is developing this different perspective. And that's what's so great about hypnosis is you can shift perspectives and say, what I'm going to focus on is not on fighting food. I'm going to focus on what I'm for, which is respecting and protecting and nurturing my body. Self-kindness at the end of the day, isn't it? It's being kind to oneself, which I think we all forget. Yes, but via your body. 
being kind to your body, and that is being kind to yourself. And so you mentioned, and I love that you mentioned this because I really wanted to pick up on it, that no one's ever obviously died or got hurt from hypnosis. Now, there's those things, obviously, people think about stage hypnosis. So is there any fear? Because I know that so much about what we're talking today, and I really want to distinguish distinguish what we're talking about, because what I don't want to do is someone go to a show and have a traumatic experience. So what we're talking about is clinical hypnosis, okay? So it's, it's guided, it's safe. If you're going to go and watch this, someone on stage, is there any is there anything that could go wrong? Well, you know, we're, we're teaching this as a health and wellness skill. And I'll, I'll tell you, frankly, Sarah, when we started, you know, every four years ago, I was a little nervous about it. You know, I thought, oh, my God, we're, I'm, my voice is hypnotizing people or teaching them to hypnotize themselves is the right phrase. You do have the best voice, by the <laughs> Thank way, you. to hypnotize. I'm just putting that in there, I have to say. Glad to hear that. I've worked on it for years. <laughs> um, I've used hypnosis with about 7,000 people in my career, so a lot. But um, I worried about it a little. I thought, what will happen if, you know, I teach all these people? We've had 500,000 downloads. We have about 22,000 people a month using Reverie. And the number of problems that have come up is like less than five. And they've all been very minor, like, oh, my migraine got worse instead of better kind of thing. Nothing that we couldn't handle. So it's proven itself to be remarkably safe. Now, you know, people... You, you can come run into people who will try to make a fool of you without hypnosis. There may be some who do it with. I don't like stage hypnosis. I don't like making fun of people. I think it does frighten people about what hypnosis is and misleads them about what it is. It's really your ability, and I'm just showing you how to identify and use the ability you have and use it better. And there, you know, there are people who are highly hypnotizable, who actually learn a lot about themselves and the way they interact with other people and protect themselves better. I had a student who said, I realized that I'm, I've been a disciple in search of a teacher, that I haven't trusted my own inner voice, but I've always been looking to someone else, and it hasn't always worked out that well. So sometimes people actually benefit by gaining a perspective uh, on how if you can get caught up in a movie, you can get caught up in a relationship, and you can be involved with someone who's not good for you. And, and sometimes that's something that highly hypnotizable people do a little more easily. So it can teach you a kind of self-protection as well. So I would say you're learning something about an underdeveloped skill that your brain has to offer you and, and how to make better use of it. It is not intrinsically dangerous. In fact, it may be dangerous not to recognize that that's one of your styles of interacting with the world and interacting with people learn to identify it and use it better. This is still quite a new concept for people in the sense of approaching hypnosis. How did you get into this? And how did you kind of, I wanna say, I'm sure you had to, I, I'm making up the story, but how did you bat off any skepticism around it? Because you're a trained psychiatrist, you are, you have pioneered this research in this field, but I can, I can imagine it being difficult I've seen that on a really like small scale. I think hypnosis obviously is on a much larger scale. And you've just said it's one of the oldest Western psychotherapies that started. And it's got so much scientific backing. Yet still, we're still quite pulled apart from using it as a preventable medicine or treatment. Talk to us about your route into this. And, and when was that? Well, it was a long time ago. It's something, uh, you set it up uh, beautifully, Sarah. It's it's sort of a genetic illness in my family. My father and mother were both psychiatrists and psychoanalysts. 
And they told me that I was free to be any kind of psychiatrist I wanted to be, so here I am. My father learned to use hypnosis as he was getting ready to go off for combat in North Africa in World War II as a battalion surgeon. Um, And a Viennese refugee uh, who could not serve in the military um, had learned to do hypnosis. He was a forensic psychiatrist in Austria. He had a smallpox scar in the middle of his forehead, and he noticed that the prisoners he was interviewing would sometimes kind of nod off and go into some kind of altered state. So he started to learn about hypnosis. He taught my father, who used it for combat stress reactions and pain control in combat in North Africa. He came back to continue his work as an analyst um, and was told that since Freud gave up hypnosis, who are you to be using it? Uh, But he had a great supervisor uh, Frieda from Reichman, who said, Herb, what are you so worried about your reputation for at this young stage in your career? Hypnosis is interesting. You're going to teach a course at the Institute on it because I'm going to take it. And so he kept doing it. And he discovered he, would, he had the unusual habit at the time of calling up patients for follow-up and seeing how they were doing. And he began to find it, you know, people would say about the analysis, well, it kind of helped, I think. But this was like three or four days a week for three years. And people he'd used hypnosis with were saying, yes, I'm not smoking, I feel better, I get to sleep, I'm not anxious, I've lost weight. Um, And so he began to shift his focus. So the dinner table conversations were pretty interesting. And I got to watch some him filming some patients that he was helping, like with with functional seizures, non-epileptic seizures. They'd have a seizure, he could bring it on, he could teach them to control the seizure. It was very impressive. So... When I got to medical school, I figured I better take a course in this. And so I did. And my first patient, uh, I was at Children's Hospital in Boston. The nurse says, Spiegel, your new admission is down in room 345. And I could follow the sound of the wheezing down the hall. She, had, she was in status asthmaticus. She was struggling for breath. They'd given her subcutaneous epinephrine twice. It hadn't worked. They were thinking about general anesthesia and steroids. I walk into the room, pretty 15-year-old redhead, sitting up in bed, knuckles white, bolt upright, struggling for breath. Her mother's standing there crying, nurses in the room. And I think, well, what am I going to do? I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. So I said, would you like to learn a breathing exercise? And she nods. So I get her hypnotized. And then I realize we haven't gotten asthma in the course yet. What am I going to do? And I said something very subtle and clever. I said, each breath you take will be a little deeper and a little easier. And within five minutes, she's lying back in bed. She's not wheezing anymore. Her mother stopped crying. The nurse ran out of the room. My intern came looking for me. And I thought he was going to pat me on the back and say, good job, Spiegel. He said, the nurse has filed a complaint with the nursing supervisor that you violated Massachusetts law by hypnotizing a minor without parental consent. Now, Massachusetts has a lot of weird laws, but that one is not on the books. And her mother was standing next to me when I did it. And he said, well, you'll have to stop. And I said, oh, really, why? And she's lying quietly, comfortably in bed at this point. Um, I, I said, why? Uh, you know, you're going to give her general anesthesia in a minute and put her on steroids. And he said, it's dangerous. I said, my talking to her is dangerous? I said, I'm not going to, you can take me off the case if you want, but I'm not going to tell my patient anything I know isn't true. This isn't dangerous. And so he stopped off and he met with the chief resident and the attending and they came back um, with a radical idea. They said, let's ask the patient. You know, I don't think they'd ever done that before. And she said, oh, I like this. Now, she'd been hospitalized every month for three months in status asthmaticus. She had one subsequent hospitalization, but went on to study to be a respiratory therapist. 
And I thought that anything that could help a patient that much violate a non-existent Massachusetts law and frustrate the head nurse had to be worth looking into. And I've been doing it ever since. You know, it just, it was so visibly obvious to me how thoroughly and quickly this simple change, instead of adding to her attention by being so frightened that she wouldn't be able to breathe, and having trouble breathing is instantly frightening, she was able to just let her body relax, feel more comfortable, and just the tension of fighting it made it worse. And she was able to interrupt that, get her body comfortable, and begin to feel proud that she had this control over something that previously scared her to death. I, that's that's how I got into it, and I haven't stopped. Why reverie? Here's the thing. I thought, you know, I had this faith, do enough research, clinical trials, show what's going on in the brain, that I and many other colleagues have done and published, um, that people would come around. They'd say, here's the evidence, it works, let's use it. It hasn't happened. Can I ask you what was the most fascinating thing that you found from that, all your research before you go into why reverie? Because I'd love to know that a study that you've done where you've gone, I can't believe this, and it shocks you. Well, it, it shocked me um, uh, when we found that people undergoing these arterial surgical procedures uh, had to lie there for two and a half hours with pain. And the ones, the, the anxiety, I looked at the anxiety levels every 30 minutes. And at an hour and a half, the anxiety levels of the standard care group who are getting pushing for twice as much opioids the anzati levels were 6 out of 10, 3 out of 10 if you just had a nurse comforting them, and 0 in the hypnosis group. I, I thought they were all dead or something. I didn't know what happened. They were, they were just so relaxed and comfortable. And you know what? The procedures got done 17 minutes faster on average because the medical team felt better too. You know, They didn't see somebody struggling and uncomfortable. They saw somebody relaxed. There were fewer co procedural complications in the hypnosis group. There were fewer problems with uh, re regulating blood pressure and heart rate because they were using less pain medication. So I looked at that and I thought, my God, this really works. And we did a study, I mentioned the women with metastatic breast cancer, does it work for over the long term? You know, you raised the question earlier, does hypnosis work? Uh, you know, what, what happens if you need more reinforcement? You've got it. So over the course of a year, I taught these women to feel a sense of warm, tingling numbness, to control the pain when they f thought they had a new metastasis of their cancer because they had chest pain. They would freak out and think, oh, I'm going to die very soon. This is awful. Instead, they'd do their self-hypnosis and reduce the pain, and they'd feel good about themselves. Pain's better. I'm not going to have to worry about it. They had half the pain in a randomized trial at the end of the year than the control group did on standard care. Half the pain on the same and low amounts of medication. So I look at this and I say, damn it, this works. Why don't people pay attention to it? And I realized that my faith that, you know, build it and they will come, do all the, and I'm glad I did it. I'm very glad I and colleagues have done this kind of work, but it is not enough. And we're fighting big pharma that, you know, sends ex-cheerleaders to doctor's offices and convinces them that this new drug is the thing to do. And drugs are a major contribution to our lives. You know, think about Moderna, coming up with a new COVID vaccine in less than a year, fantastic. But um, it's not the answer to all problems. And there is a first step we can take before we have to resort, re resort to medication. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, do something else. So I just decided, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this forever. I've learned to do this. I want to leave with people methods that I know help. 
And, and I look at the history of integrative medicine, and the move has been from patients, not from my colleagues' doctors. It's patients who spend more money out of pocket in the United States for integrative care than they do for mainstream medical care, go to more practitioners for integrative care than they do for mainstream medical care. It's been the patients who say, I want to be in control of some aspect of my health care. And so they're getting acupuncture, hypnosis, learning mindfulness, doing functional medicine. Um, uh, and, and so that's a good thing. People are taking charge of their own bodies and their own care. And this, it's not an alternative to medical care. It's it, to integrate it with medical care. And I've just decided that there's a reservoir of intelligence out there and people who know their bodies better than anyone else who can learn to do this. And I want to make sure it's available to them. And I want not hundreds or thousands, I want millions of people to be able to take advantage of their own internal abilities to control body and mind with hypnosis. I think it's one of those most, or hopefully I think it's one of the things why I started this podcast is actually giving people the information to be able to work on these preventable solutions that can really help manage their health. And everyone is so individual and that's something why I'm so passionate about having such a, a wide scope of topics on this show because if something can give a light bulb moment to one of our listeners that's for me that is enough you know knowing that someone else has made an actionable change to their health that they feel that they know about because they've listened to the show it's kind of my main goal with this and I think people are going to be listening to this and you've mentioned Reverie which is the self-hypnosis tool and the app that you've built Something that's really important, and I talk about this a lot as a nutritionist, anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. There's a registered body, though, that you should look for if you want to go and see a nutritionist. Now, with hypnosis, I know we've spoken about clinical hypnosis. So the self-hypnosis, which is a referee app, which we know has been done by you, so it's verified, it's ethical, it's safe. But for anyone who wants to explore hypnosis, maybe they say, actually, I really want, maybe you're going to be getting loads of calls after this. But if they don't call you, how can people look and know that they've got kind of a verified practitioner? Sure. If you're looking for professional to help both assess what your problem is, decide whether hypnosis is something can help or other things, uh, medication or other kinds of psychotherapy can help, you want to go for a licensed and trained professional in clinical psychology, in medicine, uh, in dentistry, if it's for pain control. So make sure that they are fully trained as a professional and are licensed by their state to perform that kind of a practice. There are professional hypnosis societies, the Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis, I think it's sceh.us, the, uh, the American Society for Clinical Hypnosis, asch.net, and the American Psychological Association has a division, a, psych a hypnosis division, Division 30, that has members and referral services as well. If you go online, and there are legitimate referral networks like Psychology Today, but again, they have people, some of whom are licensed uh, professionals, some of whom aren't. So go for the ones who specialize in hypnosis and have licensing and training in their primary clinical discipline. And if they want to do self-hypnosis, head to the Apple Store and download Reverie because it was made by you. That's right, that's, that's our baby. <laughs> And, and I'm proud of it. We have a wonderful team making it, and it works. And you can get it if you have an iOS phone from the App Store, if you have an Android from Google Play, um, and try it. First week is free. Um, if it helps you good, if not, no harm, no foul, that's fine. 
Um, but uh, it's, it's worth a try, and you may surprise yourself. And that's one of the things I love, actually, is just looking at the sense of surprise. People, my God, I feel different. I feel better. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. So you can add it to your toolkit for ways to help yourself and your body feel better and look better. Reverie. So, David, thank you for today. Now, before we leave, I ask my guests all the same questions, so I'm very interested to hear what you say to this. It is, David, what does live well, be well mean to you? For me, living well and being well is a matter of living sort of fully and vibrantly, um, kind of taking full advantage of all of our abilities within ourselves, in relationship with our body, in relationship with our loved ones and people. It's relating well to all of the creatures that depend upon us, our bodies, our families, our friends. There's a kind of vibrancy in engaging in exploring the possibilities that life offers, whether that's taking a beautiful hike or skiing or swimming or enjoying time with family, but it's freeing yourself to make the most of the opportunities that our minds and our bodies offer us. Freeing ourselves is such a empowering, empowering word to leave that on, actually, freeing ourselves. That feels very related to hypnosis. Yes, yes, it is. Thank you so much for coming on today. It has been enlightening, and I really hope that this encourages our listeners to try hypnosis, give it a go, and um, and please write to me and let me know if you try it. I will be fascinated, and I'll share them with you, Dr. Spiegel, and let you know people's experiences, if this has hopefully encouraged them to give it a go, um, because there is, as you said, and what you've also pioneered, incredible scientific data around this. So I'm really excited that we could put it in this episode of Live Our Be Well and, um, and give it the recognition it deserves. Thank you for bringing this to light and all the work that you've done in this area. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>